What's up, everyone? Welcome to Desolation Radio. It's me, your boy, Dan Evans. I'm joined by the boys, Nathan Cush. Hey, all right. And the boy, Steph Tinman. All right, Christian. Over the last month, there's been an increase in violence in Israel-Palestine, focused originally on the eviction of Palestinian families in the Sheikh Jarrah neighbourhood in East Jerusalem. This since spiralled into a more serious and large-scale confrontation, which has seen a renewed Israeli bombardment of Gaza. Since recording this episode, news has come out of the deaths of journalists and doctors, including Dr. Abu al-Uf, who led the response to the COVID pandemic in Gaza. And by the last count, over 66 children. Truly <laughs> horrific, uh, inhumane situation that Israel is perpetrating upon the Palestinians. There have been numerous large-scale protests across the world, yeah, unprecedented, I would say, as the tide seems to have finally turned against Israel. So to explain this appalling situation and to make sense of it all, we were delighted to be joined by Professor Norman Finkelstein, certainly one of my my academic political heroes. Steph, do you want to just say a bit about Professor Finkelstein? Uh, well, like as will become rapidly apparent during the course of listening to this episode, he is an absolute legend. He's like, um, it's just kind of like, there are some things which require contextualization with the stuff he says. Um, he was born in New York in 1953. He's the son of survivors of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and uh, both his parents were deported to Medanitz and Auschwitz, and then they moved to America and had him. He studied political science at Stanford. He basically he fell under the later sort of had a mentor type relationship with Noam Chomsky and they both have the same sort of method, methodological process where their work is based on marshalling an enormous number of sort of liberal sources so drawing from consensus opinion then deriving from that radical implications and radical critiques of the western foreign policy order um, but I think like Dan, you sort of identify with him as a, like a fellow punished academic, like a fellow uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. fellow cancelled uh, academic. Because famously, he was on the sort of tenure track at DePaul University in Chicago, and he destroyed uh, a book that Alan Dershowitz, the famous Epstein well alleged Epstein <laughs> co-conspirator and uh, trial lawyer and Harvard law <laughs> professor, yeah. Um, <laughs> He destroyed his book, The Case for Israel, so hard on public radio that Dershowitz basically made it his life's work to destroy Norman Finkelstein's life and career as he went from being an assistant professor to basically having to pick up teaching jobs in sort of random parts of the world and, and sort of make his living through his writing. Fair play to Dershowitz. He, uh, he loves destroying lives, doesn't he? <laughs> He's just, just like... And, and like one of the most malevolent people alive. So he yeah. came under his fucking eye of Sauron and then he's uh, had to forge his own path as a sort of independent scholar. But in sort of recent, is I think like his PhD work is focused on Zionism and the sort of particular sort of Western media constructions of Zionism and Western media reactions to Zionism. Famous works he's written are the Holocaust industry, which is referred to towards the end of this interview. But most recently he's written a book uh, about sort of the last 20 years of Gaza, Gaza's history called Gaza and Inquest into his martyrdom. So we wanted to get him on specifically to talk about Gaza. But basically he was like... Um, like like a waterfall or like a hurricane or something, a largely uncontrollable natural force. So we had, yeah, I personally was just sat there like completely tongue tied because he was coming up with this stuff which is basically flawlessly 
constructed, like like reading an academic paper, except that's just what's going on in his head. You just have to ask him a question. Use the word genius and throw it around, but like you know, he, if you read some of his work and he calls himself like a forensic scholar, you know the detail is is like absolutely painstaking. He also manages to write with this. Not aggression, that's the wrong word, but sort of it's not. <laughs> it it's like, it, you know, it's a righteous, it's a righteous anger, which I think is like, shines through all his work. And it's funny because, you know, obviously in the in the news at the moment constantly is this thing about cancel culture and, you know, um, what cancel culture is. But what cancel culture is, is an incredible scholar like Norman Finkelstein being blacklisted by the American university like industrial complex and the Israeli lobby for speaking his mind and telling the world the truth about Gaza. And that's, you know, that's, that's what it really is. And, you know, recently we found out, you know, he was denied entry to Israel because he's rattled people (laughs) just nonstop. He's rattled like an entire nation state to the point where they won't let him in just because he criticizes it. He denied his Eurovision (laughs) song contest entry as well, didn't he? Yeah. It's just like his Eurovision entry, sir. How dare you? Like, yeah. But you know, like and as you said, Steph, like an all-round uh, legend and, and sort of hero, and yeah, just just uh, well, you'll find out soon enough. So let's take it away. <laughs> Professor Finkelstein, obviously, what's going on in Sheikh Jarrah is at the moment is pretty pretty horrific and what seems to be happening ostensibly at least is ethnic cleansing you, in your work you've basically written about the foundation of the state of israel and the nature of zionism and from your work it would appear that you know the idea of ethnic cleansing and the forced removal of palestinians is not something that is an aberration but it's something that is intrinsic to the state of israel you know in beyond chutzpah you, you talk about the 1948 war and the Palestinian refugee crisis. How would you characterize what is going on at the moment in East Jerusalem, and how how does it fit in with the history of Israel-Palestine? Well, right now, East Jerusalem has become kind of a sideshow to what's happening in Gaza. So there are really two separate trajectories. One is the martyrdom of Gaza. And the second is the systematic Israeli efforts or undertakings to create this Jewish state in Israel. And this Jewish state, the twin pillars of which are creating a Jewish majority or a Jewish supermajority They call it a strong majority. And secondly, confiscating as much of the land as possible in order to in order to accommodate the Jewish supermajority. And we'll leave aside for a moment the question of Gaza itself and just look at that process. The fact of the matter is, and this is not hyperbole, it's not poetry, it's not exaggeration. What happened, what's been happening in Sheikh Jarrah, literally, literally, it happens every minute of every day in that part of the world. The past year, most of the headlines 
regarding Israel-Palestine have focused on Israel's efforts to confine the Bedouins in the Negev desert in a smaller and smaller area, dispossessing them of their land. And then there is the daily dispossession of Palestinian land in the occupied West Bank in order to enable new settlements to be created, new roads for these settlements, new infrastructure for the settlements. And all of that process uh, requires the expropriation of Palestinian land, the confiscation. We don't really have to use polysyllabic words the robbery and theft of Palestinian land. And the only thing that made Sheikh Jarrah unusual was, number one, it was relatively middle-class families who live in those homes, and so they had good connections. They were able to create an infrastructure of demonstrators who were willing to support them. So you had the demonstrations in Sheikh Jarrah in support of the Palestinians who were slated to be evicted. Then you had the Israeli police come in and brutally assault those supporters of the families in East Jerusalem, including some Israelis. Then you had a spillover from the demonstrations in Sheikh Jarrah to Al-Aqsa Mosque. Then Israel blocked Damascus Gate, making it difficult for worshippers who were going to Al-Aqsa during Ramadan to enter the mosque. Then you had the Israeli assault on the worshippers in the mosque, and then that triggered the Hamas reaction, and the rest is unfolding before our eyes, or as we speak. Now, the creation of the State of Israel, it wanted that Jewish majority, or supermajority. The only way they could do that was a massive expulsion of the indigenous population. And so about 750,000 Palestinians were expelled between 1947 and 1949. And about 60 to 80% of the land those expellees owned was confiscated by the state of Israel. Then a certain percentage of the Palestinian population remained in place and the new undertaking was to rob them, those Palestinians, about 140,000, those Palestinians who weren't expelled in 1948, what we now call Palestinian Israelis, those who were involved in civil resistance, rioting, whatever you want to call it, 
the past couple of weeks in Lod, in Jaffa, in Haifa. Those are the Palestinians who remain. And then the process began of stealing their land. And about 40 to 60 percent of the land of the Palestinians who remained in Israel, their land was stolen. And then after 1967, Israel occupied the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza. And then began a new wave of land theft and land robbery. In the case of the West Bank, approximately 30% of the land in the West Bank is now controlled by Israel. When we say controlled by Israel, we have to understand what that means. Israel defines itself as the nation state of the Jewish people. So, in the state of Israel, 93% of the land in Israel is owned by the state of Israel. And because Israel is the state of the Jewish people, the nation state of the Jewish people, that means the 93% of the land in the state of Israel is earmarked for Jews only. The major Palestinian municipalities in Israel proper, we're not talking about the occupied territories right now, the main Palestinian municipalities, they confine Palestinians to about 3% of the land in the state of Israel whereas Palestinians are 19% of the population. In the West Bank, as I said, Israel now confiscated about 30% of the land, again, for Jews only. In East Jerusalem, which Israel regards illegally as part of its capital, they are also trying to create that Jewish supermajority. So, for Israel, there's one Jerusalem, West Jerusalem and East Jerusalem. They form one Jerusalem, and they want to keep the population ratio at roughly 70% Jews, 30% Palestinian Arabs. So, how do they do it? the same way as they've always done it. They steal the land of the Palestinians to make space for Jewish settlers in order to create that Jewish majority. They cram the Palestinian Arabs into a smaller and smaller and smaller place, suffocating them, not giving them any building permits to build new homes. When they build anyway, because of family growth, the Israelis demolish the homes. And that was the fate that was awaiting 
approximately 300, now I don't know if it was, I think it was 300 families in East Jerusalem. I'm not sure, if it, would, it would have to be 300 families. I can't remember if it was individuals or families, but I think it was 300 families or 300 homes. One, you know, one of the three, either homes, families, or individuals. Uh, and that was the flashpoint at Sheikh Jarrah. But as I said at the beginning, it was all a fluke. Sheikh Jarrah, it happens every minute of every day. You hear about land being stolen in the West Bank, land being stolen from the Bedouins in the Negev. I mean, it's just an everyday occurrence. It was just a concatenation. The demonstrations, the police brutality, the invasion of the mosque, it happened to have been Ramadan, it happened to have been the highest holy day of Ramadan when the Israelis attacked the mosque. So that's what made it unusual. But this notion that, you know, Israel says, oh, it's just a real estate dispute. To some extent, to some extent, there is a truth to that. The truth is they want to make it out like, well, this happens all the time, a real estate dispute. In fact, that's kind of true. It does happen all the time. They're stealing land every minute of every day. For them, it's business as usual. This is how they carry on. It's like, you know, in American history, it was the theft of the Native American lands. That's how it happened. Systematic, it's a juggernaut. You know what a juggernaut means? It's this mighty force that just keeps going forward. It's this Israeli juggernaut to create its Jewish state. A Jewish state for the Israelis, it means something very simple. It's not complicated. It means a state that's all Jewish. Now that's an ideal. It's an objective. It's an ideal difficult to achieve. But that's the ideal. That's what they're aiming at. A pure Jewish state. And along the way to creating that pure Jewish state, they need the land for the settlers who will constitute the demographic majority, supermajority, and in the ideal, the entirety of the Israeli state. That's its, it's its raison d'etre, it's its reason of being. If, you, if that's how you define a Jewish state, then those who are not Jewish become ipso facto, marginal, irrelevant, expendable, and ideally, they're gone. That's the ideal, to disappear them or make them disappear as you said the, the fact that it's all come to the surface now given that it happens routinely and laws regarding property yeah. rights as you said are built into the the fabric of the state of israel and and you know when you read about these things it is it is quite bizarre to see the legalistic foundations that they've created property rights based along ethnic lines and, and so on and so forth but israel has had a good year during covid because the whole world has been looking at israel and saying Israeli progress on the COVID vaccine, how fantastic it is, ignoring the small print that the vaccine has been, you know, denied to the Palestinians, ignoring the small print that, as you've written about, that the Palestinians still live in an open prison in Gaza. So 
it's kind of like you know they've had a, a good year in terms of their own propaganda. It's only a good year because the West, the Western media makes it a good year. In any other context, the idea of distributing a, va- a vaccine to one half the population but not the other would be seen as an obscenity. Number two, it's just a, it's a bias, a prejudice. It's more than a bias and a prejudice. It's a arrogance of the West. Israel is eight and a half million people. Okay? They distributed the vaccine. Let's say they distributed it to all the Jews. All right? So they distributed it to six million people. That's not a big victory. I mean, six million people you distributed a vaccine to. It's not such a big victory. I'll give you an example by comparison. You'll never hear the comparison. You'll never hear the comparison. Vietnam is 100 million people. And that's a substantial population. It's 100 million people. Do you know how many COVID deaths they had in Vietnam? Do you know how many? Was it about 23? 35. Oh. <laughs> now, that's a spectacular story. It's a spectacular story. Vietnam, which the United States bombed into the Stone Age, it managed to rebound. It's next door to China. The moment they hear about the COVID, there's a, let's call it a robust lockdown, 35 deaths and 2,100 who have the, the virus. That's it. You know, that's a story. That's a story. Israel's not a story. It's only a story because it's Jews. I'm sorry, but it's true. So, oh, the Jews, wonderful. The moment, the moment the COVID started hitting the West, the moment Israel announced, we have the vaccine. We have the vaccine. They don't have the vaccine. <laughs> they just, everyone says, Israel has the vaccine. You know, like all the geniuses, the super geniuses. They have the vaccine. They don't have the vaccine. And frankly, if I were the head of state of Israel, I would work on the fact I would work on a cure for mental illness. <laughs> <laughs> and not for COVID. First of all, they have a lot of people to experiment on there. You know? And I'm not referring now to the Arabs, by the way. You said then, um, Professor Finkelstein, about because it's Jews. Do you think that there's like almost an orientalist way in the West of looking at the Jews as well? Look, why does one have to lie about these things? Jews have a lot of power. They have a lot of money. They play the Holocaust card. Everybody's afraid to say anything negative about Jews. And so they get away. It's a free ride. Listen, I'll tell you something. It's the worst thing that happened to Israel. You know, Professor Chomsky in the 1970s he used to say those people who call themselves the Jewish supporters of Israel. If you go back and look at his writings, which you're not because, you know, it's 50 years ago. But if you go back and look, because I've read them very carefully. He said those who call themselves the supporters of Israel are actually calling themselves the supporters of Israel's destruction. Because they got this free ride. They got this free hand. They got so arrogant. They got out of control, you know. And now it's a disaster. What happened to Israel this past week has got to be 
with maybe the exception of the 2006 war in Lebanon, it's got to be the biggest disaster they have. Yeah, I think this is probably the biggest disaster in their history, except for the Lebanon war. I'm trying to think, can I think of another disaster? Well, it's um, the civil war in Lebanon, you mean, 2006, or the one right there? The, the incursion into Lebanon, where they didn't do very well. 2006? Yeah. I call it an incursion. I mean, it was a massive yeah. destruction of Lebanon, and mm. then invasion, but it turned into a disaster for them. <laughs> and this has been a complete catastrophe. First of all, on just on the, the military level, do you know what Gaza is? I mean, people don't understand what Gaza is, I don't feel. I, I get this feeling people have this Gaza in their imagination that has no relationship to the real Gaza. You know what a marathon is? You know, when you run a marathon. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So do you know the length of a marathon? 27 and a bit miles. Okay. It's 26.2 miles. Gaza at its length is 25 miles. So the length of Gaza is... A marathon. The width of Gaza, it's seven miles. So my Central Park, which is the big park in New York, Central Park is a little more than three miles. Gaza is, the width is two Central Parks. That's it. So the whole, that's the whole thing. It's a marathon by two Central Parks. It's been hermetically sealed since 2006 for 15 years nothing goes in nothing goes out no one goes in no one goes out without israel's permission half of gaza how old are you you don't mind me asking daniel 36 you're an old man (laughs) (laughs) he's our dad you have you have any children no i don't just us (laughs) how about you you other guys how old are you I'm 33. Yeah, I'm 33. I didn't know that. um, Half of the Gaza's population is children. 54% are children. They're under the age of 18 years old. The total population of Gaza is about 2,100,000. It's among the most densely populated places on Earth. And this tiny, this sliver of land, sliver of land, half the population is children, Hermetically sealed, 50% of the population is unemployed, 80% are dependent on international humanitarian aid, 96% of the water is unfit for human consumption, Israel is the regional military superpower, it has a higher standard of living than Spain, than Italy, and Gaza is held to a delegate. It's an unbelievable story. It's complete, total catastrophe. But that's only half the picture, because I said I would just look at, you know, the, the facts in the ground. Israel has, you know, if Israel wants to make a claim to the Guinness Book of World Records, I would say its world record is probably no other country has so successfully mobilized the hatred of the, of the people on the planet as Israel. It is absolutely hated now. It is despised now. I, I want to give you just one example, which is very striking to me. So I'm an oldster. I'm older than you guys by a uh, margin. 
You look better than us, though. <laughs> I never quarrel with facts. <laughs> That's my freedom. <laughs> Here's the thing. In the 1970s, I was involved in the Palestine struggle. It wasn't the only thing I was involved in. I was involved in many things. I was a multitasking lunatic of the left. And uh, so it's New York City. We would march down the streets singing about 200 of us. We would be chanting, not singing, chanting. Everybody should know we support the PLO. A really dumb slogan, by the way. But one which I was utterly, completely terrorized of chanting because I did. I'm telling you the honest to God truth. I was terrorized some sniper was going to kill me. Marching down Fifth Avenue, I was, I was a gunner. I was a sitting duck. Me and the others marching together. Everybody should know we support the PLO. You can't imagine what that was like. It was like after the day after 9-11, Walking yeah. down Fifth Avenue chanting, everybody should know we support Osama bin Laden. That was, that was like, I'm I mean, a fan of the Taliban. Was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm a fan of the Taliban. That's exactly right. And um, Israel, whenever there was a war or something, it would be able to bring out, in the blink of an eye, the Jewish organizations would bring out a million Jews. And there would be a long Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn. We support Israel. We support it. And all the politicians would come to give their speeches. So this past week, what happened? I go to a demonstration in my neighborhood, in, uh, roughly my, in my borough. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Young people. You're an oldster next to people. <laughs> I'm serious. For all 20, 21, 22, the same sorts of people who come out for the George Floyd demonstration, yeah. the Black Lives Matter demonstrations. Mm -hmm. It's our new youthful proletariat, multinational, every color, shape, religion. This is, it was represented. Young Palestinians were climbing up the, po the traffic light post and putting up the Palestinian flag. And the, the police were standing there and not doing anything. They were not doing anything. They were packed into these cars up and down the street, waving the Palestinian flag. I was, com I was completely shocked. It feels like a real sea change, doesn't it? Yeah, and, but that's half the story. You know what the other half is? We're now in, I think, the seventh day it began May 12th. What day is today? May 17th. 17th? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so it's only been five days. I feel like wow. Maybe it began May 10th. I can't. When was Sheikh Jarrah? When was the Al Aqsa Mosque attack? The first clashes were between residents of Sheikh Jarrah and settlers on the 6th of May. Then on the 7th of May, uh, Israel stormed the Alaska Mosque. Then there were ongoing running battles and protests. And then on the 10th of May, uh, Israel stormed the mosque for the second time. And then obviously it's, it's spiraled from there. Here's the point. There's not been one demonstration in support of Israel in New York. One yeah. oh, demonstration in support of Israel. It's absolutely breathtaking. It's unprecedented for sure. Israel has, as I said, they it, fucked it. <laughs> 
if you want to give it a, if you want to give it an entry in the Guinness Book of World Records, it's a hollow country of about eight million people, eight and a half million, of whom six million are Jewish, managed to turn the whole world against them. And that was because exactly what Professor Chomsky said. You say you support them, but you're supporting their destruction because you gave them a carte blanche to do anything, to carry on like Mongol hordes. And it's turned into a complete disaster. It's interesting to see Biden and you know the various other State Department people being put in front of the TV, an obvious contrast with this youthful protest against Israel. And obviously, you know, the U.S. State Department is still the same old tropes. They can barely even say they wouldn't even. There was an interview with a guy who wouldn't he, couldn't even bring himself to say Palestine, I think. And, you know, we respect Israel's right to self-defense and, and so on and so forth. And in terms of, I guess, you know, it is because Israel's role in the region is, is what it's like the it's a satellite for America. But I was just wondering if you could talk about, you know, because the myth of self-defense is obviously central to the traditional uh, Western defense of Israel. The line that's rolled out is if only Hamas would stop firing those rockets, there would be peace. Um, you know, Israel acts in, in self-defense. But, you know, you, you, your book on Gaza shows how you know, Israel are very good at provocation and also the insane inequality in the conflict and how Israel has always used these sort of retaliatory, rudimentary rocket attacks as a cover for everything. Well, it seems like you've read more than five pages of my book. <laughs> <laughs> Three times. Yeah, between us, we've read all of it. So yeah. <laughs> we just split it up. Like. Yeah, yeah. Which of you was assigned the index? I was reading the Holocaust industry again, and I noticed that half of it was just footnotes after 150 pages. Brace yourself. Are you ready for this? Are, yeah. you, are you seated? You have your seatbelt on? <laughs> it's called scholarship. <laughs> <laughs> I know that um, your generation thinks scholarship is tweets. But, uh, yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> I'm just going to, I'll give you a five minute answer and then we'll have to part ways until the rendezvous of victory. Okay. First of all, I have a special heart, a special place in my heart for Welsh. Oh, thanks so much. Because um, you were the site of Paul Robeson's Proud Valley. Yeah. <laughs> the transatlantic phone call that he did with the South Wales miners, uh, oh, no. that was in, that's in my town, so. <laughs> Yeah, and the um, but the thing in the museum in the town got moved basically into the basement, so no one even knows it's there. It's pretty tragic, but do the Welsh miners still exist? No, but they, they still have, you know, there's still uh, <laughs> residual yeah. elements. There's privatized miners. Excuse me, is there still a Welsh choir? Welsh? Yeah, there are still choirs. Yeah, yeah, my my dad used to be in one uh, years and years ago. There's still choirs. No, Robson's the hero of my life. Oh, really? It's fantastic. Well, we've been planning on doing a, a, a Robson podcast, if you fancy do it, coming on again. I know a lot about him. He's my hero growing up. Yeah, an incredible guy. He'll be my hero to my death. He was one of a kind. To return to your question, to me, it's a pretty uncomplicated question. And uh, 
The question is always put as, does Israel have a right to self-defense? That's the way it's posed. Or doesn't Israel have a right to self-defense? And I would like to put the question, or I would like to pose a counterpoint question. Uh, one of Israel's leading sociologists, his name is Baruch Kimmerling, he's since passed away. So he wrote a book in 2003. He was a professor, a senior professor, at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And in 2003, he wrote a book on the prime minister at that time, Ariel Sharon. And at a certain point in the book, he turned to the question of Gaza. And he described Gaza in 2003 as the largest concentration camp ever. That's how, that was his description of it. Now, blockade of Gaza as we know it, the blockade didn't begin until 2006, this brutal, illegal, immoral, criminal blockade of Gaza. So the Gaza that Baruch Kimberling was describing as the world's largest concentration camp ever was a pale comparison in terms of the misery to what it became after 2006 when there were the Palestinian elections. Jimmy Carter, the former U.S. president, called them free and fair elections. And when the people of Gaza elected the wrong party, and so they have to be punished, and that's why the blockade was imposed on Gaza. So here's the question. The world's largest concentration camp ever, your own prime minister, David Cameron, described it as an open-air prison. Human Rights Watch, in its most recent report, called it an open-air prison. It's imprisoning, incarcerating, if you prefer, the concentration camp analogy, it's imprisoning, incarcerating 2.1 million people, of whom a half are children. And then it seems to me the question properly, uh, properly cast is, do concentration camp guards have the right to self-defense? But that's not a joke. These are concentration camp guards, the state of Israel, and the people of Gaza are trying to break free from the concentration camp. Do the guards have the right to self-defense? Maybe I'm missing something in international law, but I don't know this. I've read the Fourth Geneva Convention. I didn't notice any article that said concentration camp guards have the right to self-defense. I didn't notice any article that says you have the right to confine one million plus children in a concentration camp. I didn't see anything in the Geneva Convention that said you're allowed to deny a civilian population water that is fit for human consumption. 96% of the water in Gaza is unfit for human consumption. They're being poisoned by the water. So I think the question is wrongly asked. It's not whether Israel has the right to self-defense. It's whether Israel has the right, or I should say, do Israeli concentration camp guards have the right to self-defense? And I think the answer is no. If I didn't say the answer is no, I would be betraying everything my parents passed me during World War II. I'm not about to do that. So 
that's the question you should be putting whenever you hear that question. Excuse me, but our prime minister said it's an open-air prison. Does Israel have the right to confine 1.1 million plus children in a prison? Doesn't they have that right? So when you tell me they have the right to self-defense, self-defense against what? Okay, you know what it's self-defense against? Let's be clear. Let's be absolutely clear so there is no terminological misunderstanding. Israel is defending itself against Palestinians who want to break free from a prison. Israel is defending itself against Palestinian children who are trying to break free from a concentration camp. You say, why don't they try nonviolence to free themselves? Well, they did. It was called the Great March of Return in 2018. It began in March 2018. How did Israel react to the nonviolent demonstrations? We know we have a very good Human Rights Report account, not Human Rights Watch, but the UN Human Rights Commission. Commission. They targeted, the Israeli snipers targeted children, it targeted medics, it targeted journalists, it targeted disabled people. The people, the young people, the journalists, and that, they were very far away from the perimeter. They were like three, many of them were like 300 meters away. So, they tried nonviolently to gain their freedom from the concentration camp. Israel shot them dead, mowed them down. Then you ask the question, okay, so now they're firing the, they're basically, they're, they're basically fireworks. Well, I'll tell you my own view, even if they were real rockets, which they're not, but even if they were real rockets, they have the right. Nobody has the right to confine you in a concentration camp. Let's be clear. It's been a concentration camp. If we go by Baruch Kimmerling, it's been a concentration camp for like two decades. I mean, it's hard to digest that. It's been a concentration camp for two decades. You've written about the, the warped nature of Israeli society, how deeply militaristic it is. You use the example of Netanyahu as, some, as almost like the personification of this. What do the Israelis want to, you know, what is their thinking with Gaza? Do you think that they want to take Gaza or you know, destroy it? Or Here's the thing. There is no thinking. Even the Israelis will tell you they have no plan for Gaza. These are Arabs. It's like a game preserve. No, really. See, people don't understand that about the Israelis. The Israelis are these ubermenschen, the supermen. And, and Gazans are untermenschen. It's the same attitude as the Nazis had towards the Jews in Warsaw. Because they're poor, they're bedraggled, they're sooty. They're subhumans for the Israelis. 
When you, if you read a few days ago, it's worth looking at Haggai El Ad, the head of Beth Selim, the Israeli Human Rights Organization. He had an op-ed in the op opinion editorial in the Washington Post, our newspaper, uh, uh, one of the main, one of the two main national newspapers in the New York Times, and he said that Gaza is invisible for Israelis. There is no Gaza. There's no plan. There's no nothing. They just surround it, close it off, hermetically seal it, and periodically, when the natives get restless, they go in, as the Israeli expression is, to mow the lawn. That's Gaza. There's no plan. These are not people. Believe me, if it were dogs, I'm in the, being literal now, I'm being literal now. If it were dogs, there would be more concern for animal rights. No, that's not a joke. More concern for animal rights than there are for the people of Gaza. I don't think there is a plan. They just seal it off, and every few years they go in to mow the lawn. That's the attitude. He says they're invisible. Nobody even thinks about it. You say, what's their plan? Well, there would only be a plan if they gave it any thought. <laughs> Don't give it any thought. These are not human beings to them. They're They're dimension. You know? It's, um, when you see the attitude, let's say, in the subway, of a subway rider to a homeless person, the homeless people in our city, I don't know about London or Wales, they stink, they reek. And they look terrible, crusty face, raggedy. They're not seen as human. People run away from them. They sting, look, you know, they run away. They don't see as, as human. And it's the same attitude with the Israelis towards the Gazans. They're not human. So there is no plan. They don't even think there needs to be a plan. They don't exist, out of mind, no, out of, out of sight, out of mind. Do you see any solution or to any, to, to any of this, this sort of misery or coming from within Israel? Or I think in the Gaza book, he wrote about the, you know, the, the great powers and, and Russia and so on, and, and the Turkey's pact with Israel and so on. Does a solution have to come from outside? Or? I, I don't know what's going to happen. The, the Israelis are so dug in. It's so hard to budge these people. It's, I don't know what's going to happen, but I think this week has been a real disaster. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be a lot of, it's going to be a subject of a lot of thought in Israel and in Iran and in, and in Hezbollah. I don't think it's looking good. I mean, when I say I don't think it's looking good, I, I think that uh, I think that Israel has a real problem on its hands, and it doesn't seem to have the capacity to to think it through, to figure it out. They don't have it. You know, in, the, our, in our own American history, uh, there was the problem of slavery and what to deal, how to deal with it. Lincoln wasn't a radical. He was pretty mainstream, Abraham Lincoln. 
But when the, the moment of truth came, he was able to rise to the occasion and make the necessary adjustments, which included a very bloody adjustment, the Civil War. A half million Americans were killed in the Civil War. He was able to rise to the occasion as, uh, you know, as uh, fraught as that occasion was. There's nothing like that in Israel. There's like, they're like all of them are on Valium. <laughs> it's a completely crazy state. I've, I've never seen anything quite like it. I mean, I wasn't around for Nazi Germany, so I don't know what ordinary <laughs> Germans were like. But these complete these people are completely lunatic. I'm wondering if I could just jump in with a quick question before you go. Um, quickly ask the question. I'm going to answer in five sec in five words. Go ahead. Um, okay. Um, right. <laughs> so, in regarding your book, the Holocaust industry, and um, how much that plays into the state of Israel, and how much that was part of Israel's development, you know, like the tri uh, trial of Eichmann and eventually the trial of uh, John. Uh, Dominic, yeah, and how like that kind of fostered that state of Israel as like uh, perpetual victimhood, you know, like how did that come about? Do you think was that like a massive conscious choice, or was something that gradually happened? I mean, there's a lot written on it. It was a very conscious choice by the then Prime Minister David Ben Gurion to try to build up a, a national ethos by orchestrating the Eichmann trial. There was a a very clear political, deliberate political uh, motive in the Eichmann trial. So I think the answer to that is yes. Look, Jews were victims. Yeah, yeah definitely, yeah. The question is, what do you do with the victimhood? Do you use it as a license to victimize others? Or do you use it as a lesson to sensitize you to other people's victimhood? Uh, I would say, you know, everybody has a little bit of a tendency to exploit their victimhood, frankly. But what Israel did was it became an industry mm. thing. You know, we as human beings, we have a thousand different propensities, some good, some bad. And either we ourselves have to make a determined effort to control our bad propensities, or we need rules and regulations that control them for us externally. The problem with Israel, as I said earlier, is the license. The free ride to do anything. Whenever they were held accountable, they played the Holocaust card. That, that was the problem. So I say yes. The reality is they were Jews were victims. The reality is those who are victims at some point all mostly not everyone. I don't think Paul Robeson did incidentally, but no, I don't. I don't think he did. Robeson earned everything the hard way. Yeah. Never, never by, never by um, sympathy. Mm. He earned it. He earned it. Uh, but in general, we all play that victim card at some point or another. Um, 
problem is degrees. Israel just got completely carried away, over the top. Now I think, frankly, I think now, even though, of course, my heart goes out to the people of Gaza, they paid a very big price. Everybody hates them. It's, mm-hmm. not a, it's not a good position to be in the world. Eight and a half million people, uh, only six million are Jewish. It's not a good thing to do, uh, to arouse the hatred of everybody. And that's what they did. And frankly, they deserve that hatred because of the way they carry on. Okay, guys. Right. Thank you so much for having so time, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very much. Bye now. Bye-bye. Well, that was uh, incredible, as predicted. I mean, I was going to say about, have you got any, uh, if Norm had any beefs or shout-outs, but I think it's fairly obvious who the beef is with. Um, so <laughs> that, that. that is shout-out. Um, I have Paul Robeson. Uh, yeah, like that, that was really interesting that he said, you know, his hero is Paul Robeson. And, you know, the, I think probably the greatest tribute you could pay Professor Finkelstein is that, you know, he has stayed true to that, the, the sort of same life that, that Paul Robeson lived and that, you know, he he's not going to back down or change himself like for anyone, regardless of what's what's thrown at him, just like his hero Robeson. Unfortunately, you know, he, he's, he has personally suffered because of his integrity. And he signed yeah. for us over Skype, didn't he? Yeah, but just but just an old, you know, an absolute uh, absolute hero. I also found out that he's um he's really into bird watching, which I thought was fascinating. Is like there must be a link between um you know being an antagonistic Marxist that loves beef and like bird watching. But yeah, like he sent us a nice message after this saying like you know basically big up to my Welsh comrades. But yeah, just like a real joy, a real like privilege to have him on. I was delighted when uh, Nathan like rapidly thought of like a chant. Like a praise of the Taliban. That was one of my, my personal highlights of the year. Which is like, no one figures out being like, that's quite good. Like, it's quite, it's quite, <laughs> he he's up, a funny bloke, he? though, isn't he? He's like, he's, you know, he's, he's not, um, that's why I think he's great. You know, he, he's like, obviously, like, um, you know, an incredible thinker and, you know, someone doesn't suffer fools gladly, but like, you know, he's a real, he's a really good laugh and he's really sound, like a really sound person as well. Like, what's wonderful, like, what you can't get on the recording is that basically at the end of the recording, he just got up and just left his computer running. It's like a sort of endless, like we were saying before, like the sort of endless stream of this invective. Like, he probably would have been doing that if we'd not been on the call asking him questions. Like, he probably just done it anyway. Total he's, hero. Beautiful man, but like, um, he was like, I, I remember there was something I heard years ago in an interview of, of his where he was talking about, and towards the end of the episode, it's quite it, again, it's quite an arresting metaphor when he just talks about Gaza as being an enormous prison camp. And you know, do, do guards in a prison camp have the right to use like unbounded violence against their inmates and things? And it, it sort of reminded me of this thing that we said in an interview once where he was talking about. His mother, who had survived the the death camps, was saying, you know, people always extraordinarily and and look, to be honest, fairly good fucking reason. Like you shouldn't be like blindly comparing your situation or people's situation freely to the concentration camps during the 1940s. But his mother's position on it was, no, fucking make that comparison whenever it's required, whenever it's appropriate to make that comparison. You have to make it in order to prevent these things happening again. And I think there's a sort of moral weight that comes from that, which basically, like, me as just some bloke, like, in uh, his front room in Nice, doesn't exactly have. But, like, it's also, like, that's like no shade on the extent and sort of depth of the scholarship and stuff but it's like you can't really 
you can't really trump that. Like, I mean, it's yeah. This is what I find funny. You know, when when people you know say like Norman Finkelstein, people think you know like a critic, someone who's like an angry uh, man who's got like his righteous anger towards Israel. But like, what's shining through for me, I interview and when we chatted to him, you know, a deeply moral man that you know for him you have to make this you have to make this criticism to say true to yourself it is a moral responsibility on people to speak out when you see suffering and i think while shines through as well i don't even know is like he's very you know one of the main things he brings up in his book about gaza and in that interview he talks about you know the suffering of children you know and like if you are you know if you look at some of the images coming out the last few days like you know kids being pulled like lifeless out of the rubble in gaza like you know that that's the core of should be for me like the core of pacifism like you know if you care about kids if you care about like the innocence of youth and like childhood now like amazing kids are then you know seeing stuff like this should just be absolutely morally abhorrent and should like cause you to you know, not just want to end the, the conflict in israel palestine but just you know to to stop bombing any country anywhere anytime to stop the off chance that you know a, a child might get killed and I, it's just, i think we should flip the way we think about people like Noam Finkelstein or Noam Chomsky or these people who are seen as like angry people you know they're not angry they're moral you know and it's um they're angry at people who basically don't see human life as valuable and and I think that's that's how we should you know think about them any shout outs Noam Finkelstein like yeah. what's that like I was um I like uh t- didn't say much during the episode except when like at the end of the call I was like a uh, teenager with, like my voice cracking like thank you first Finkelstein like, yeah, it's pretty good. So yeah. Every time we looked at Steph, he just had like tears rolling down his eyes. Like, <laughs> I think he like, looks amazing though, doesn't he? He looks like he looks so in like such good shape. He's so lean. Like, we had to we had to cut out um bits um of the interview because he just in the middle of a sentence he stopped and just do ten press ups and then just like, pick <laughs> up where he left. But yeah, he is a very handsome, uh, and accomplished man. So shout out for me is to to Storm and Norman. Nathan. Yeah, the the. The triptych of like you know all all um all praise to norm like what absolute like and to make time for us as well because he is like you know yeah it was totally, uh, he's, he's a busy yeah, totally man and, to get him out as well yeah yeah uh, he found <laughs> us yeah no problem at all <laughs> uh, cool oh, all right um so yeah thank you all for listening please make sure you uh follow us on twitter at dare station wales uh and also to subscribe to our patreon because amazing quality output uh big and big guests takes time and money yeah i'd also uh, jump in and say the norman science book on the holocaust industry is really interesting and although it's 300 pages long literally half of those are footnotes <laughs> <laughs> right thanks so much for listening all see you soon yeah. all right cheers bye-bye during your speech you made a lot of references to Jewish people as well as certain people in your audience, not Jewish people in general, but certain people, especially in your audience, to Nazis. Now, that is extremely offensive when certain people are German. And they're also extremely offensive to people who've actually suffered under Nazi rule. I don't respect that anymore. I really don't. I don't like and I don't respect the crocodile tears to, con- to the crocodile tears. No. Uh, I'm so, folks, uh, allow me to finish. And allow me to te- allow me to finish. Listen, sir. Allow me to finish. Allow me to finish. Uh, sir, sir, I don't like to play. I don't like to play before an audience the Holocaust card. But since now I feel com- now I feel compelled to, my late father was in Auschwitz.
My late mother, please shut up. My late father was in Auschwitz. My late mother was in Maidana concentration camp. Every single member of my family on my father's side, on my father's side, the Jews did not take arms against the my Germans. My late father was in Auschwitz concentration camp. My late mother was in Maidana concentration camp. Every single member of my family on both sides was exterminated. Both of my parents were in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And it's it precisely and exactly because of the lessons my parents taught me and my two siblings that I will not be silent when Israel commits its crimes against the Palestinians. And I consider nothing more despicable than to use their suffering and their martyrdom to try to justify the torture, the brutalization, the dem demolition of homes that Israel daily commits against the Palestinians. So I refuse any longer to be intimidated or browbeaten by the tears. If you had any heart in you, you would be crying for the Palestinians. Not for what's inside.